listening to the Story Embers podcast, a podcast dedicated to guiding and inspiring Christian storytellers to glorify God with excellent craftsmanship. I'm your host, Grace Livingston, and welcome to episode 29, How to Tactfully Portray Sinful Thoughts. Hi, everyone. I'm Grace Livingston. I'm Josiah DeGraff. I'm Rolina Hatfield. And I'm Dea Slam. And today we're discussing corrupt characters, specifically the challenge writers face when trying to effectively portray the sinful thoughts of a corrupt or evil character without negatively impacting the reader. In our Tricky Subjects for Christian Storyteller series on the blog, we talked about handling subjects such as darkness, violence, swearing, and sex as a Christian storyteller. And I'll link that series in the show notes if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. It is, in my opinion, one of the most phenomenal resources on our site. Um, But in that series, we mentioned a couple of times the challenge writers can face when writing corrupt characters with dark thoughts. We didn't have a lot of time then to dive into that challenge by itself, though, so today we're going to be tackling it head on. When is it safe for writers to immerse themselves in the mind of a corrupt character? How much of that character's mind is it right to reveal to your audience within the pages of a book? And what advice do scriptures give about this topic? We'll be diving into some of these questions today on the podcast. So let's start with the first one. And Josiah, how about you go first? When is it safe for writers to immerse themselves in the mind of a corrupt character? I certainly think that when you are asking this question of when it's safe to immerse yourself in the minds of a corrupt character, you're you're asking yourself the right question. Because I do think there are risks that we take as doing this that sometimes are necessary, but which we need to be aware of when we're doing it. I can distinctly remember the first time I wrote the conclusion of uh, the uh, book I've been working on for the past four years. And doing so required me to to get pretty deep into the mind of the the one character who is doing some pretty pretty terrible things in the conclusion and, and i distinctly remember I, I wrote a while that there's a three to four writing an hour writing session i remember kind of just going outside and just need to to walk it off just because i felt so so weighed down from being in, in the mind of the character um i was able to do it well but it certainly placed uh placed a weight on me that I was quite cognizant of and needed to, to spend some time praying over afterward. To some extent, you know, I feel like there's a lot of when is it safe to do so that is going to be very dependent on where you are in your life. You know, certainly for our younger audience, if, if you're still a teenager, you know, there might be things as an adult you'd be able to, to sink, sink your mind into that, you know, really may not be you know, the right time for you if you're still a teenager. Um, there's also a lot they think has to do with your, you know, your, your spiritual maturity, um, and also just your awareness of what you're getting into. Um, for me though, my, my recommendations might have less to do with when is it safe for them to immerse them. You know, I think it's natural for us to ask, well, is it safe for us to do so? I largely think that that's a personal question on how strong you are as a writer. So in my mind, you know, while at certain times it is appropriate to ask, is it safe to do so? I I largely think the better question isn't, is it safe? Because I think there's always going to be some danger. But in light of the fact that it's dangerous, what are the different things that you are working to do to counteract the danger? Which means being cognizant of it, which means praying a lot about it, which means going to the scripture, which means going 
you know, going to friends, you know, because writing isn't always a safe task, writing like any other activity in life is always going to come with dangers. And so when we're, if we believe we need to understand what motivates people to do evil things, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to do so, but we need to take precautions to make sure we're not dragged away with it. Uh, I'll piggyback off you, Josiah. I agree that most of us at some point are going to face this situation. And the real question is, how do we approach it? And one of the things I found super helpful is what I call keeping your enemies, quote unquote enemies, close to you. Um, and these are not real enemies. They're just people who are antagonistic to the way you write. So if you write uh, fantasy with magic, keep in contact with people who think that's wrong. If you write a lot of violence, uh, have some people who can bear to read your stuff, but maybe think that you should tone it down. Each one of us is an extremist in some sense. None of us are perfectly balanced. And so uh, we may be too careful. We may be uh, too liberal. And in keeping a wide variety of uh, feedback coming in, then that will help us to uh, stay balanced. What about how much of the dark character's thoughts you present to the reader? Because there's always two sides to the kind of dangers of storytelling. There's what the writer immerses themselves in to write, and then what the reader immerses themselves in to read. And while we may not be wholly responsible for what every reader experiences when they read our writing, we do have like some element of responsibility. So let's tackle the same question, but with the reader in mind. How much of a corrupt character's mind is it right to reveal to the reader within the pages of your story? Okay, I'm going to jump in here and ask Josiah a question because I know, Josiah, that you are a huge fan of Flannery O'Connor. And I recently bought uh, her complete short stories. I started reading it, really love a lot of her style and uh, even how she can deal with some <laughs> really sinful characters. However, uh, as I was reading, got to the point, uh, what's the character? I think his name is Enoch Emery. Oh my goodness, it was like, Every single sentence was just like his lust for woman. And it got overbearing. And I was like, ah, maybe I'll finish this another time. Like the story was not praising that. It was about sin and repentance and um, those sorts of issues. But I was like, I don't really want to read this. So Josiah, what's your take on Flannery O'Connor? Um, so I, I obviously really, really like Flannery O'Connor. Um, I think I know what, what story what story you're, you're talking about. It's, is it the, the, the potato peeler one? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I obviously like Flatter O'Connor. Um, one of the challenges of answering this question is the fact that different readers, you know, come at, you know, come at different places. And so the things that, that bother me or that bother, you know, you, Deus, or you, Orlina, or, you know, to any of our, our listeners out there, we each have a different list of things that, that bother us. And there's going to be some things that bother Deus that don't bother me. There are some things that will bother me that don't bother Deus and so on and so forth. So it's, you know, I, I do feel like there's a certain portion of the question that's that's hard to answer because of how subjective it is based on the readers. One of the distinctions that I would make between what Flannery O'Connor does in her depiction of Enoch Emery, say the depiction that you get of, you know, of unbridled male lust that you get in certain, you know, YA romance novels that I've had the misfortune of reading um, and coming across some interesting passages in them. One of the differences is that, you know, with, with Enoch, at least as rear, I always get this sense that it's this 
there, there's an intentional ickiness, I feel like, in the way that Flannery O'Connor portrays it. You know, so as this guy is, you know, is hiding under the bushes, just watching these women sunbathe in their swimsuits. My skin cop crawls up and is like, I, I do not like this guy. I do not like the things that he's doing. I am very much rooting against him. So it's putting us in the mind of a, of a character who is, who is lustful, but it's doing it in a way where we're not... Where uh, at least as rear, I don't feel you know drawn away with it as much as I just feel disgusted by it. Which isn't to say that some readers won't be drawn away with it because you know our our consciences are are different. But that's you know, at least my personal reaction, as opposed to you know some YA romance novels where it's like, oh yes, this character is lusting, and the author's right there with them to try to get the readers there with them. It's like, okay, I'm going to uh, you know put this book down, or maybe just skip past this chapter because I really don't like like the way that this chapter is heading. I think that's that's one important question of you know is what kind of mind are we trying to put our readers in, and are we writing the story in a way that's encouraging that kind of a mind? I think that lust specifically is one of the things we have to be really careful of as writers because I think that's the the most the area where it's most dangerous with the, you know, with the effects that you know, it has on readers and how we're on what we're doing if we're putting our readers into the mind of a, of a lustful character. Um, I don't think that we are, I don't think that we have a responsibility for how every different reader responds to it because, you know, there will always be a reader who will be stumbled by even the most innocent thing. But while we're not responsible for every readers, I think we do have a responsibility for how we write and what effect can we reasonably imagine this passage having most most people? What is the effect we're trying to bring across? And are we trying to bring it across accurately? You know, my take on O'Connor is as she puts us in the mind of Enoch, she wants us to be disgusted and writes in such a way that's dis- that's disgusted. Certainly you may disagree with me on that front, and you know, different readers will come to it differently, but that's how I would defend uh, you know, her her decisions in the potato peeler and the other Enoch story. I can agree with you. He is very icky. And I think that was what kept me reading for a bit. It was just that it, my mind is mainly concentrated on hating him. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's that's the other question is the reader might not be stumbled by it, but they're just like, I don't want to read about this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested in following story of this corrupt person. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts, Rolina? You guys kind of hit on this, but um, as you were saying earlier, when we come and approach writing about sinful thoughts and characters and immersing ourselves in these corruptive minds. I mean, we all have minds. (laughs) And so it it comes with our part as discretion as the author of how we approach the story. Um, But then I also, as Josiah was kind of hinting at, um, the, the reader has to come to your book with discretion as well for what they're, they're going to read and what they want. And, you know, some people may, may be all right with reading what you present and some people may not. And that's completely fine. I was thinking about a book that I had read that, and I don't even remember the title of this book. I read it so long ago um, when I was just a young and, <laughs> and there was, there was a character who struggled with lust and then also a couple other things. And I think that's the one we've mentioned the most because it's a very sensitive area. But um, one thing that I noticed is in that book, like it was just a consistent struggle throughout the entire book. And there'd be like page after page after page of just a struggle. And I would end up like skipping parts just to be able to get back to the plot of the story. And although I I was like, this is, I mean, this is realistic. And I feel like this character could struggle with this. um, One thing that I have really appreciated is that if there is 
that that moment of thought and maybe just a couple times throughout the book. But instead of it being like a consistent page after page thing, um, letting it letting it come out once or twice and then um, moving on with the story and also letting that our job as writers is to be able to resolve. I mean that at the end. So showing the consequences of those thoughts, because I know the scripture says that um, whatever is inside of our hearts is going to come out. So thoughts are very, very intimate things. And when we um, put them in books, it makes characters so realistic and we all have thoughts, but um, I like to think about, so when I'm thinking about something, you know, no one's going to hear my thoughts unless I vocalize them or they're going to come through my actions. Um, so I think there also is way, if you're dealing with a really sensitive topic in a subject, to imply their thoughts um, instead of that page after page effect, you know, to imply their thoughts through their actions, like that it's eventually going to come out what, what they're thinking. Because um, if a friend shares a thought with me, it only takes a couple of sentences for me to be able to resonate what's going on in their head and to be able to relate with them as a person. Just to piggyback off of that, I think one of the things you said, Rolina, that, you know, that I think really strikes, you know, strikes a chord with me is how long are you putting your audience into that frame of mind? You know, because I think there is a very real difference between I've got a villain in this book. I'm going to have a couple of chapters where I'm really just going to put my, you know, my readers into the mind of this villain to understand him. And a book that says, well, the whole book is about this villain. And so they're going to have to spend the, the whole book you know, entrenched in it. One of the books I, I think about is I read a book last year called The Spectacular Now about this high schooler who is an alcoholic, uh, wasting his life, has a lot of serial relationships that just end in flames. And on the one hand, it's, it's a very artistically done book. And the book does a really good job of putting us into the mind of this character so we understand well, what causes someone to make make these decisions and they're all really good scenes. In addition to that, the, the book, it doesn't really portray it in a positive light as, you know, without spoiling much, the book does not end with him in a good place. Realistically shows here the cause of that. Now, on the other hand, while the book ends with him in a good place, it comes after, you know, for the last two thirds of the book, the story has just kind of been reveling in here are, here's all of the exploits of this high school teen. And on the one hand, I could see the author saying, well, the book is reveling in it because that's what the character is doing. And it takes them reveling into two thirds until everything unravels at the last one third of the book. So essentially, you know, it's, it's, it's accurate, it's honest, it's true. And, and I certainly have an appreciation it takes work to be able to do that. On the other hand, there, there's a sense in which you know, I, I almost felt and I, I have very conflicted thoughts on the book because I kind of felt like in the end, like, well, you can say it was all wrong, but you still reveled in it for a good two thirds of the book. And, you know, I almost wonder if, you know, if instead of being only told from the protagonist's perspective, if it had also been told in the perspective of one of his friends, you know, so it's kind of going back and forth and we're able to see it. It, it would feel less like like reveling because, yes, when you're in the character's mind, it's honest and realistic to depict it as reveling. On the other hand, when you when you spend two thirds of it reveling, yes, you can say, "Oh, by the way, don't revel." On the other hand, it seems like the story is kind of working against it, and I really feel like in that story, you know, some alternate perspectives would have really helped some of the effects of the book. So that could not to make it less authentic and less honest, but a way to make it more authentic by showing different depictions of it instead of spending so much time just going into this character's deteriorating mind. And this can even be a principle for all of writing as well. Uh, sometimes we feel like if, if there's a characteristic of a character that's just pervasive, that we have to make that pervasive in the story. That's not necessarily the case. 
Like if you uh, want to introduce one character who's in love with another character, you don't have to introduce by saying, oh, and he's been visiting her uh, every night the past three weeks. You just show how excited he is going to visit her once and how he talks with her. And we're like, oh, we know there's a history here. There's so much you can assume uh, just by the way the character acts. We, our brain is naturally wired to go, oh, this is the norm. We'll be right back after this break. Hey listeners, last month I introduced you to Michael Stanton, the host and narrator for Stories by the Embers, a series of bonus podcast episodes. In each episode, Michael gives a professional dramatic reading of a short story we've published and interviews the author about the process of writing it. Follow the link in this episode's show notes to listen to the first episode featuring A Heretic Sacrifice by Josiah DeGraff. And let us know what you think by emailing us at info at storyembers.org. We're thrilled to be running this series on the podcast, but we're only producing a few of these fireside readings and interviews. So if you want them to become a regular addition to the podcast, you need to let us know. Welcome back, everyone, to our discussion on how to portray sinful thoughts without stumbling readers. We've already talked about when it's safe for authors to immerse themselves in the minds of corrupt characters and how we should approach showing readers a corrupt character's mind, but let's dive deeper into what this looks like from a Christian writer's perspective specifically. I know our Tricky Subjects for Christian Storyteller series covered very similar territory, so if you're interested in hearing some of these panelists' broader thoughts on the topic of portraying different dark elements in fiction, definitely check that out. But today, let's look at this specific example of portraying sinful thoughts. What advice do scriptures give about this? How do we approach this in light of God's word? I uh, anticipated the objection some people would give to this talk, going back to the famous scripture, what is it? Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 3, and 11 through 13 or 14. I'm just going to guess, Josiah, do you think the same thing? I was actually thinking Philippians 4.8, but go ahead and hit that passage. Yeah. All right. We'll double team. It'll be great. So without doubt, when the subject comes up, someone's going to think of Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 11 through 13. So I'll read that. I'm um, using the New King James Version. So verse 3 is, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. And then uh, verses 11 through 13 are, And have no fellowship, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Uh, So we have to deal with these passages, because on the surface, uh, some people would say that these say we should uh, keep away from uh, putting simple thoughts in a book. So uh, just looking at verse 3, I think it's important to look at it in conjunction with verse 4. Now, uh, most translations we look at will have this uh, neither or and in verse 4. So uh, let not, don't even name these sins. And they say uh, in verse 4, neither filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So I think that neither is important, that there's a, a one idea being addressed here. It's not two separate ideas. What's addressed in verse 4 is this flippant attitude towards these topics. It's just jesting. It's coarse language. And so there's obviously two ways of addressing these topics. One is a very serious, sober, uh, respectful version. And then the other is making light of it. Even if it's not promoting it, making light of it can be promoting it indirectly. And then we'll really get to the meat, I think, in verses 11 through 13. And uh, so there's a tension in these verses. We're told to expose the works of darkness. 
but we're also told it's shameful to even speak of these works of darkness. It feels like a contradiction. And I've seen some uh, expositors fall, I think, too far on one side of this. I think the tension is really important. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, there is kind of a shame in just speaking of some of these things because they're so shameful. Just talking about these things all the time can give like free press to these sins and exposure and maybe tempt people to do things they hadn't thought of before. And uh, But we have to understand it doesn't say it's sinful. It's shameful. And the word's kind of more like base or it's kind of like a street talk. It doesn't necessarily say evil. Uh, on the other hand, we're told to expose these works of darkness. And some people say that we do that by uh, living in the light, by our actions. And that's definitely true. But I, I think that's uh, ignoring part of the verse. It says, whatever makes manifest is light. And light is such a pure and holy image in the Bible. And it doesn't say some things that make manifest are light. It doesn't say your actions uh, are light. It says whatever makes manifest. And that can include, you know, in a novel, exposing the works of darkness, the sinful thoughts of people, vocalizing what they did and why it was wrong. And of course, you can do that in a way that blends darkness with the light. You can do it in an arrogant, in a, uh, in a supportive or demeaning way. But exposure does bring light to a situation because it's, it's God's law convicting us. Mm, that's good. That's good. I, I, I agree with you on, on the interpretation of that verse. You know, the other, the other verse I was thinking that often comes up in these discussions, I think is actually quite relevant, um, but perhaps not in the way it's sometimes used, um, is Philippians 4.8, you know, which says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Right. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I see this passage being used of, oh, well, don't get yourself in the minds of a character because that's not true, honest, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, et cetera, and so forth. You know, I think this verse is actually very relevant, but I don't think it's relevant in that way for a couple of reasons. If what Philippians strictly means is don't ever you know, think about things that are false, things that are unjust, things that are impure, things that are ugly. That's not really feasible in a world where we're surrounded by, by lies and, and ugliness and injustice all the time. Right. So it can't mean that we shouldn't deal with those things, especially because in the Bible, we see a lot of really bad things. You just look at the last couple chapters of justice or not, not justice. Just look at the last couple chapters of judges. And it's like, you know, I teach ancient literature and that's some of the darkest stuff that I've read from ancient literature in the last last several chapters of Judges. So yeah, the Bible certainly talks about dark things, right? So, so, so then what does this mean? Well, I think what this means is that when we are dealing with things that are false, that are unjust, that are ugly, that are impure, that are of evil report, we do it with a mind of, of how can we seek to bring about truth and what is just and what is beautiful you know, in spite of this, how do we fight against such things? You know, I don't think it's talking about, you know, don't let you know yourself think about these any of these things, but what are you meditating on and what are you are you trying to be? And so I think the application that has for us as authors is that I don't think, you know, we should just be exploring the mind of a corrupt character just for the sake of exploring a corrupt mind. If, if we're exploring the mind of a corrupt character, it's essential that our goal is that we want our readers and our audience to better meditate on truth and justice and purity and loveliness and virtue. And so as a result, we're depicting it in such a way that as our readers see it, they reject it. 
because they're seeing it portrayed as something that is that is ugly and corrupt, and they see the ugliness and corruption for what it is. So I don't think this means we can't portray ugliness and corruption, but I think we need to go into it the mindset of, I'm not just doing it for its own sake, just to be realistic, but I'm also doing it because I want my readers through the experience to better understand what is good and true and virtuous and honest and just and pure. Those are really good verses. Um, I was also thinking about the Philippians 4 verse. Um, I really appreciated what you said about Ephesians 5 there, Deus. Um, And I think just kind of for me wrapping up a few things, when I think about verses on thoughts in the mind, um, this kind of goes back to what we were saying of just um, using discretion and also as writers, what we need to do um, when we're dealing with these thoughts and having to think about them ourselves. And I was thinking about uh, Romans 12, where it talks about, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then also Isaiah 26, where it says, um, whose mind is stayed on the Lord, he will keep him in perfect peace. Um, And kind of just for me, that's just wrapping up where we as writers having to deal with um, thinking about these things or even writing about uh, sinful thoughts is like, uh, I think Josiah was mentioning, what we're meditating on at the end of the day and prayerfully putting this to consideration and thought um, that we come back and we're we're dwelling on the light and we're meditating on um, God's word and his truth and his, his love there. So yeah, just uh, making sure that we're coming back and renewing our own minds in, in him. Yeah. And I think that's as authors, you know, we, we, we need to be right in a way where we, we do have, we're not violating our peace with God, right? We're, we're following our conscience and, you know, the calibration of our, our conscience is hard, but, you know, don't feel the need to, to do something that goes against your conscience just because everyone else is doing it and live and write in a way where, where you feel, you know, where you feel the peace of God and you're seeking to deliver that to readers. Thank you all so much for coming on and thanks to all of you listeners who tuned in. What topics would you like to hear discussed on the podcast? Email us at info at storyembers.org to let us know. And as always, special thanks to our Patreon supporters, Taylor Clogston and Michael Stanton. Want to help us better guide and inspire Christian storytellers? Visit patreon.com slash storyembers to become a supporter and get access to exclusive storyembers updates, swag, and more. Finally, join me again on August 17th as Josiah, Hope, and Brandon tackle finding time to write when you have no time on the next episode of the Story Embers podcast.